Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Hello, this is Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to a special episode of This is Critical, as we mark the one-year anniversary of the Trumpite insurrection of January 6th, 2021. It's hard to believe it's been a year since the day it seemed American history stopped dead, with whooping Trump terrorists in tactical athleisure, carrying nooses and selfie sticks and Confederate flags as they stormed the U.S. Capitol to stop Congress from confirming Joe Biden as president so they could install the soundly defeated Donald Trump for some kind of thousand-year Reich. Though I suffer from plenty of leftover coup anxiety myself, especially with rumors that January 6th was only the beginning of the Trumpite sedition, I can't muster up too many monologues or jests in advance of this show. And that's not just because it's a solemn day, but also because it's my honor to have three supremely astute guests to speak as no one else can about the experience, meaning, and consequences of January 6th. First, I'll talk to Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, who was in the Capitol certifying the results of the 2020 election when the violent invasion took place. Congressman Jamie Raskin, my second guest, was also there, but he was experiencing his own personal trauma even before the attack began and then went on to lead the impeachment of the man who incited the attack. Finally, I'll talk to Jamel Bowie, the New York Times opinion columnist and my former co-host on Trumpcast. Jamel excels at putting events like January 6th in historical context. But first, as I mentioned, we're talking to someone who was in the room, who was there, a witness to history from inside the Capitol building. Hakeem Jeffries is a congressman representing New York's 8th District and chair of the House Democratic Caucus. Congressman Jeffries, welcome to This is Critical. Thanks for having me on. Tell us about your day on January 6th, 2021. Well, we began the day preparing uh, to head to the House floor to certify the election of President Joe Biden uh, and incoming Vice President Kamala Harris. I had also made the decision the day before uh, to ask all staff members to stay home and work remotely uh, because there was some concern uh, that there could be at least very active and aggressive protests uh, that would take place on the Capitol grounds connected to the rally uh, that 
Donald Trump and his minions had put together. Uh, and so all but one staffer stayed at home and worked remotely. And one staffer, uh, my senior policy advisor, Wayne Williams, uh, was with me on the Hill, but everyone else uh, was off campus, thankfully, based on what yes. ultimately took place. Did you see anything before the violence that might have predicted the size of it? It certainly did appear clear to many of us in advance of that fateful day on January 6th that Donald Trump was playing with fire, that for four years plus he had been radicalizing uh, swaths of the American people in ways that were dangerous. And in fact, I think you can go back to the days of Barack Obama's presidency, uh, where effectively for five years, Donald Trump perpetrated the racist lie that Barack Obama was not born in the United States of America in order to try to de- legitimize our nation's first black president. And if you think about that moment, it was both racist, but it was also designed to delegitimize our government. That really was a precursor for what ultimately led to his presidency uh, and the thousands of lies that he told. And then finally, the big lie that culminated in the January 6th violent attack on the Capitol. So what moments stick out to you from that day? The moment that probably crystallized that we were entering into a very different space was when uh, Nancy Pelosi, who was on the rostrum as the speaker, uh, was suddenly and expeditiously removed. And the sergeant at arms or someone from the sergeant at arms' staff interrupted the debate and then says that the mob has breached the Capitol. They're on the second floor. They're a few steps away from the House chamber. Uh, Be prepared to hit the ground and secure the gas masks that are underneath your seats. I'll never forget those words because I never thought that I would hear them. And I didn't even know that there were gas masks underneath each seat in the House of Representatives. Did it remind you of anything else you've lived through? Well, certainly my my initial reaction was, whoa, this is is about to go down. And I I think in some ways, having grown up in Brooklyn during the height of the crack cocaine epidemic, 2,000 plus homicides, mid to late 80s into the early 90s, many of the feelings that I had at that moment on the floor that something was about to happen that was very serious and potentially deadly reminded me of some of the tough spots that I may have found myself in a long, long time ago uh, growing up as a teenager in New York City. turned out that the level of violence was something that I think none of us uh, have ever experienced in terms of a full-blown violent mob and riot. I mean, I I hope people are hearing this, that that incredibly challenging and frightening time in New York history was superseded by this moment in, in the Capitol. Did you prepare physically to fight? Yeah, it's interesting because... The doors were being barricaded by 
the handful of Capitol Police uh, officers who were within the chamber, all of whom were in plain clothes. And sitting right behind me was a congressman, fellow member of the Congressional Black Caucus named Colin Allred. And Colin Allred says to me, I don't know about you, Hakeem, but I'm not going down without a fight. I'll never forget those words. Now, Colin Allred played linebacker in the NFL for the Tennessee Titans for five years. And I think my reaction at that moment, uh, Virginia, was if you ever find yourself in the middle of a violent insurrection, it's probably a good thing to have an NFL linebacker by your side. <laughs> right there. Exactly. You say you, you can block and tackle for me. And uh, that's an extraordinary moment. So what is it to prepare to fight? I know that, you know, trauma happens so much in the body and just getting on such high alert like that. Um, you know, I know some people felt kind of collapsed and some people felt very coursing with adrenaline. Um, what, how was it for you? Yeah, I think the adrenaline began to flow. Now, a couple of things were happening. Everybody had gas masks and people were trying to figure out how to unpack the gas masks. Oh, yeah. And or put them on. And I'll never forget because Ruben Gallego, who was in the next section over, former current congressman representing you know, parts of Arizona, but a former Marine who served multiple tours of duty, he was actually... Um, on the floor, helping people unpack their gas masks and be prepared to put them on. And you know that's an image that I'll never forget. Colin, after he says to me, essentially, we got to be prepared to fight for our lives and fight our way out of this, his jacket comes off. Hmm. So my jacket comes off. And then right next to me is Pete Aguilar, the vice chair of the House Democratic Caucus. His jacket comes off. Sean Patrick Maloney's jacket comes off. And there's an image that someone would subsequently uh, show to me uh, that has us all on the floor, jackets off, in some cases, sleeves rolled up. At that point, when the jackets had come off, I said, well, I might as well take my tie off as well because I don't want my tie being weaponized against me. Maybe that was my street Brooklyn instincts kicking in from decades ago. And we really weren't sure. We thought that we probably were going to have to fight for our lives at that moment. So what happened after you first heard the announcement? The uh, security staff apparently found an evacuation route for us to safely take. And then they asked everybody to exit the chamber to the right of where I was seated, you know, in a, in a swift but orderly fashion. And members began to pour in uh, to this particular room, this secure location. I think the first thing that was happening as we were walking in to this room is that everybody was on the phone calling their family, their loved ones, their children, and checking on their colleagues. What was interesting about those next few hours together is that uh, Liz Cheney and myself found ourselves to be respectively the high, highest ranking members of leadership hmm. were in that room. Uh, hmm. Liz Cheney then as the chair of the House Republican Conference and then myself as chair of the House Democratic 
caucus. And the one thing that we decided to do uh, was that as we received information, as we communicated to the members who were there, we would always speak together and in mm. one voice. And Liz and I had a pre-existing relationship, agreed to disagree on a whole host of issues. She is as conservative as it gets, but she's always been a straight shooter, as we've seen over the last year, particularly as it relates to the rule of law and the Constitution and democracy. And so we were in lockstep in communicating with the members, and I think we did it together on three different occasions. In that room? In that room. Yeah. So, and that looks like you two talking and saying, let's tell them this, let's, let's clarify this, let's, like that? That's exactly right. The, the most important thing that we were communicating at that point in time when there was a lot of uncertainty is that we are in a secure location. Do not reveal to anyone, including family, friends, or staff, where we are. You can say that we are safe, we are together, but do not reveal where we are. And I believe at the time there was some member uh, who was giving an interview on Fox News live from the secure location. And I think it was Liz Cheney who said, and we've got a member giving a Fox News interview right now. That's exactly what we should not be doing. I think the entire room reacted. You know, it's astonishing to hear you describe that keeping some kind of um, order was still significant in the moment where you were bunkered against a terrorist attack. I now have a sense of how, from your account and from uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez's account of the day, of how it affected you, you know, reminding you, I think, I think that AOC says trauma compounds itself, reminding you of other moments in the past. How does this sort of chime with past national traumas and how can we move past it if we can ever move past it? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think in many ways it connects to the prior point that you made, which is the notion of maintaining a sense of order, a sense of stability, a sense that the government through it all is going to sustain itself. And when you think about the, the two prior moments in our American modern history that will live in infamy, of course, December 7th, the attack on Pearl Harbor, and September 11th, 9-11, the country rallied together, demonstrated resilience, and a commitment to persevere and maintain the freedoms uh, that we have as a country, uh, because that is what makes America unique, uh, a country that is anchored in laws and not men. And I think when Liz Cheney and I spoke, I recall saying uh, that at some point this evening, we are going to return to the floor of the House of Representatives to complete our work, to certify the election, and to ensure that the peaceful transfer of power takes place. And I was surprised that the room exploded in bipartisan applause. I knew that Democrats would connect to that message. I was pleasantly surprised that Republicans, at least as of that moment, in the room, almost across the board, did as well. And I made the point 
that mob rule will not prevail in America, that the rule of law will. And as it relates to this notion of trauma, I think for all of us who were trying to get through that day and continue to try to get through the turbulence that we continue to live through as it relates to our democracy, COVID, the economy and inflationary pressures, it's that collective resilience uh, that is an important part of us really dealing with the tough psychology of the moment, where so much is coming at everyday Americans in so many different directions, uh, that togetherness and resilience and the strength of America having been through stuff in the past uh, as a way forward to get through what we're dealing with right now is what is so critical. Coming up after the break, how do you heal from a personal trauma and a national trauma at the same time? Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome back to This is Critical. Joining me is Jamie Raskin. He's a Democrat in the House of Representatives who managed the second impeachment of President Donald Trump, the one that followed from the events of January 6th. But on that day, even before the attack on the Capitol began, Raskin was dealing with his own personal trauma. His 25-year-old son, Thomas, died by suicide in late December. Raskin and his family buried Tommy on January 5th, on the 6th, Raskin brought his daughter and son-in-law to the Capitol. He wrote about his experience in a new book called Unthinkable, Trauma, Truth, and the Trials of American Democracy. I asked him about how those traumas collided in the Capitol a year ago. Well, our world uh, ended on the last day of December of 2020 um, when Tommy took his life. Uh, it was just an absolutely crushing and agonizing thing for me and my wife, Sarah, and our daughters, Hannah and Tabitha, and for our large extended family and for our friends. Um, you know, it's just hard to know how to think about even moving forward. But as we moved on, um, it became clear to me that the loss of Tommy was connected in fundamental ways to things going on in the country. Tommy suffered from depression, but it was profoundly intensified and worsened by COVID-19 and the isolation and demoralization that so many young people like Tommy felt. He was 25 when we lost him. So 
I, I wrote my book um, in honor of my son. I, you know, I don't want his spirit, his memory, his life's work to be forgotten. Um, but also, I had to record what happened a week later because we lost Tommy on Wednesday, the last day of 2020, and a week later was the violent insurrection and the attempted coup against the 2020 presidential election. A week later, we impeached Donald Trump. And a week later, Joe Biden was sworn into office on Wednesday, the 20th. So anyway, I, you know, I wasn't sleeping anyway. And I wrote this book as a memorial to our son, but also with fervent hopes for our ability to rescue our own democracy from the clutches of right-wing authoritarianism. That week for you, beginning with, you know, your last dinner with with Tommy, uh, all the way through the experience of being at the Capitol during that day. Maybe you can you can walk us through that that narrative in particular. Well, um, I was with Tommy on the the last night of the year, twenty twenty, and I hugged him and I said, "I love you, dear boy," and he said, "I love you, dear dad," and. Those were the last words that we spoke. That was the last time I saw him alive. And uh, Sarah was out of town and the girls were not home. And I found him the next day. So that's a dreadful part of the story. I won't go into more of it now. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'll just tell you that my chief of staff, Julie Tagan, who came over, said that for hours I was basically catatonic and just rocking back and forth saying, my dear boy, I've lost my son. I've lost my son. My life is over. My life is over. So we were surrounded by a lot of love, family, friends, and my constituents were so good to me. And um, we had Tommy's graveside service on January 5th, on January 5th. And because of COVID-19, we couldn't have a full-blown funeral. And it was very cold, gray, wet day. Anyway, so it was just our family. There were, I think, 25 of us there. And we went home and we were still surrounded by family. But I had to get ready the next day for January 6th. This is the the day that the Constitution assigns for the counting of electoral college votes, the receipt of those votes, and then the declaration of who the new president is going to be. It's been the day considered the peaceful transfer of power in America. And as my uh, buddy from the Rules Committee at Perlmutter from Colorado told me it, traditionally it was a day of bipartisan celebration. There would be drinking in the bars and it was, you know, it was very pro forma. It was a ministerial thing. But of course, in Donald Trump's determination to seize the presidency once more and to overthrow the results of the 2020 election, that constitutional moment was transformed into another partisan referendum and an attempt to revisit the presidential election. So that's what we were looking at. That was the very inside. That was the coup at the very center. The next level out was the violent insurrection with the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Proud Boys, the Aryan Nations, the militia groups, the QAnon networks. These were people who were training for violence and came and began the assault on the building and knocked out our windows and smashed our cops over the head with Confederate battle flags and speared them with Trump flags and knocked them out and so on. And then beyond that was a mass demonstration that Trump had called for 
for a wild protest in Washington that turned into a riot. And that's what we were facing on that day. You give an extraordinary description of the more than haunted feeling of being in the building. You knew that this, you know, what others had called a slow rolling coup, the delay, delay of of Ted Cruz and others to kind of keep the certification at bay, and then from the outside with violence. I mean, that feeling, especially to you in your vulnerable state, I mean, is there any way you can describe that for us? Well, the, the strange thing for me was that I experienced no personal fear on January 6th because I was still in such shock and mourning and trauma about Tommy. And I really felt a great sense of anger about what was taking place and indignation. But I thought to myself, these people can't do anything to me because I've already lost what's most precious to me. You know, what more do these people think they're going to do? And I was very angry. And, uh, you know, and I just kept thinking to myself, I've lost my son. I'm not going to lose my country. I'm not going to lose our democracy. There's no way. And I'm going to fight these people. And, well, I, I, I haven't resolved this completely in my mind, and we're still investigating. But um, in some sense, the violence of the insurrection spun out of control. They wanted enough violence and enough insurrectionary activity to delay the proceedings, to put the pressure on Pence. But I think it got so bloody and so out of control that there was a huge reaction in the country against it. And as I heard one Republican colleague saying on the phone, as we were being uh, escorted out of the chamber, uh, you screwed it up. Y'all screwed it up good. There were some people, I think, who felt like the insurrection level of the attack interfered with the coup. And we, even when we went back in that night to complete the counting, there were still Republicans who were still trying to thwart Biden's majority in the Electoral College, and they still wanted to get Pence to reject Electoral College votes. So the way the the Carter administration, I'm sure you remember this, was described as OBE, overcome by events. I sometimes think this nation now is OBT, something like that, overcome by trauma. Your book definitely describes a nation that's been repeatedly socked in the solar plexus. What toll do you think this has taken generally on the country? Well, it's been devastating in so many ways. We have people who are so shell-shocked that they can't even tell the difference between truth and lies anymore. And people who believe propaganda and conspiracy theory, um, we have people who've been overcome by depression and despondency. And I went to my friend, um, Norman Santrich, who's a professor of classics and political science at Howard. And I asked him, um, you know, is there a God of trauma hmm. in the Greek gods? And there's not hmm. a God of trauma. So we sort of imagined what a God of trauma would look like. And I can see a God of trauma looking kind of like Janus, that the two-faced God who looks both to the past and to the future at the same time. And trauma, on the one hand, can strip you of everything most precious and most beautiful and, you know, most meaningful to you in your life. But then, amazingly, paradoxically, the God of trauma can link you to other people 
in a much profounder way than you've ever known possible. So, I mean, it's not necessarily a fair trade. I mean, if you said to the God of trauma, hmm, well, that, that sounds like a good thing to understand other people's pain and suffering and to grow in wisdom, but it's not worth it. The sad part is the God of trauma just says, well, it's not up to you. That idea that it's not up to you seems like something that is also true to Tommy's vision of the world. It doesn't sound like he was a religious person, but he was deeply philosophical. Well, I think you've got my son right. I mean, he was very much a philosopher, um, you know, in the original sense of uh, a lover of life and a lover of the world. He did have that very strong deterministic sensibility, which I think has something to do with his depression. I think that his farewell note to us said, please forgive me, my illness won today. Look after each other, the animals and the global poor for me. All my love, Tommy. You know, that's like an instruction manual for how to lead the rest of our lives for us. And real philosophy is not just about pondering, but it's about learning how to live with more integrity and more decency. Yeah. And that's what Tommy was all about. But we would have the the determinism free will debate, <laughs> he and I together, just endlessly from when he was a little boy. And the last time we talked about it, <laughs> uh, I said, well, I guess I have no choice. It's determined that I believe in free will. <laughs> and he said, and I choose to be a determinist. <laughs> so <laughs> we sort of ended up paradoxically there. Um, I think he did carry some sense of fatalism about the disease that was within him. That brings me to something, a question you say. I want to emphasize that the book is is really a work of art and philosophy in a way that I, I didn't expect reading it. So you say at one point, many nights I'd stay up wondering whether to tell myself that mental illness took Tommy's life or he took his life in response to mental illness. You say this is a subtle difference that tormented you. Maybe I'm stretching this, but it seemed to me, and I'm maybe seeing parallels everywhere, but it to apply equally to the nation. Did Donald Trump drive his followers insane or did longstanding illness in the country in the form of racism and despair did that drive people to Trumpism and this kind of self-defeat? Well, when I asked the question about Tommy, I was looking for that margin of free will. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering, did he make a conscious, rational decision to take his life because he felt so overwhelmed by mental illness? Or was he compelled by the disease to do it in an unthinking way? Mm. Um, and it was kind of an unresolvable dilemma until I, I had an MRI test after we lost Tommy. And um, I don't know if you've ever been in an MRI machine, but I was staring up at just the machine. And I had a, apparently a not unusual reaction of intense claustrophobia. Yeah. yeah. By the end of it, I had an epiphany that this dilemma that I had been so just torn up over really wasn't much of a dilemma because mm -hmm. from the standpoint of somebody who feels trapped and desperate, 
whether it's the disease speaking or your response to the disease, it it's really the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you just feel like you have no choice. Yeah. And that was the moment when I saw that, that I, I stopped worrying about that. And I accepted that Tommy had a disease and um, he had good doctors and he had medication and God knows he had a million people, including his family and his closest friends who adored him and loved him. And he felt the same way about them. But he said his illness won. He, he saw no way out. And that's a very, very bitter pill to swallow. So when you talk about the country, I feel like we have so much more sovereignty and control. Hmm. And that's why... I feel this obligation to take the experiences I've had to tell America we can get out of this. Like right-wing authoritarianism and fascism are not our destiny. Hmm. We don't have to surrender to that. The vast majority of the people don't believe in it, but we just need to organize and mobilize and educate and have confidence in America as the greatest multicultural, multiracial, multi-ethnic constitutional democracy there ever was. Not because we were born perfectly, because we weren't Mm -hmm. in conception and inception. We were not. There were major flaws there. But it was through the process of social struggle and change that we have come to realize the ideals that were built into the original Declaration of Independence about consent of the governed and life and liberty in the pursuit of happiness for everyone and the equality of all people. We've made those things real and we can't let go mm-hmm. just because there are authoritarians and despots and tyrants and kleptocrats all over the earth in league with Donald Trump uh, and his band of criminals uh, struggling to reclaim their power. We cannot let that go. I know that some who've revisited Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's famous stages of grief say that the last step is better understood as not just acceptance, but purpose. That's what I read in the book, that there's something, and it definitely reminds me of of, of Joe Biden's account of his calling on strength from his late son, Bo. You know, what would Bo have me do? And this is something I see you, you asking yourself. So I guess, how would you define that purpose? Um, Tommy, was somebody who felt the struggle for human rights and human freedom and democracy in his bones and looking even beyond the bounds of humanity to stop the slaughter of animals for human consumption. So, you know, the title of the book is Unthinkable because our loss was an unthinkable one, just like the attempted coup and the violent insurrection that took place on January 6th, that was unthinkable. But also unthinkable are a lot of the values and ideals that Tommy had about getting us beyond a world that's defined by war and civil war and authoritarianism and fascism and all these things to move to a different place. And I feel like Tommy came to us from 500 years away from a world that is beyond the violence and the oppression to let us know that another world's really possible.
Congressman, you have a very provocative line about we Democrats, and you say this as a legal scholar, we Democrats are in love with the rule of law, you say, and with voting and the channels of popular participation to ensure democratic self-government, which sounds wonderful, except that you say, you know, in the process of being enthralled to our system, looked away from a very old threat that Alexander Hamilton warned of, the threat of an opportunistic demagogue. Tell me more about that. Well, yeah, in Federalist Number 1, Alexander Hamilton says you've got to watch out for demagogues and mobs that work together. And these demagogues, uh, they start as demagogues who exploit negative emotion, but they end up as tyrants over the people. It does take civic action and engagement for us to rev up the rule of law. I mean, that's what we're trying to do to tell the story to America in our select committee. So law enforcement can do their job, but we as a people can do our job too. You know, I'm of the school of, uh, you know, John Dewey, who said that, you know, the only solution to the ills of democracy is more democracy. And when we have problems, it's because we're not democratic enough. For example, the Electoral College is a clearly anti-democratic relic from the 18th century, uh, which harms us in a lot of ways. It gives us popular vote losers as president five different times. Um, And now we have seen that a bad faith actor like Donald Trump can exploit every nook and cranny in this creaky, uh, obsolete institution to try to push a personal political agenda. So you know, if we could wave a magic wand, it would be great to just to replace it and elect the president by popular vote the way we elect governors and U.S. senators and representatives and so on. So I draw some consolation. Maybe this this sounds far fetched, but from the desperation of acts like the storming of the Michigan uh, Capitol or or the insurrection itself, which is, you know, when you don't have any cards to play, when as many people have observed, including Donald Trump, Republicans can't win without epic cheats and even violence, then you know that someone at least is at the bottom of their options. And, you know, they, they don't have very many cards to play. Um, you know, when we were just back, when it, when it was simple obstruction of justice by Bill Barr, we were sort of at a higher, a little bit higher level. They had more cards to play. But when it comes down to muscle, when it comes down to smashing windows, I think that we may be seeing some last gasps. What do you think? Well, hey, I, I thought I was the rose-colored glasses guy. Uh, <laughs> you know, I look, I, I think you, your essential insight is absolutely correct. They are a minority party and a shrinking minority party. Hillary beat Trump by more than 3 million votes. Biden beat Trump by more than 7 million votes. All the young people are coming our way. The GOP is nothing to offer young people in America. Um, and they are forced to survive on a collection of the most anti-democratic institutions in the country, like the Electoral College, like the gerrymandering of our congressional districts, which they will defend to the ends of the earth, um, like right-wing judicial activism and court packing and so on. But I, I don't want to understate the magnitude of the political task ahead for us because they do know how to manipulate those levers of power. Let's acknowledge what they're doing in terms of gerrymandering. We tried to get rid of gerrymandering in the For the People Act. 
Uh, we want to get rid of it um, in the legislation that's still in the Senate. It's the Voting Rights Act. Yep. They are thwarting that. What I'm doing is I've got a project called Democracy Summer, which Tommy and Hannah and Tabitha were very involved in. And we are educating and mobilizing young people to learn about the history of the struggle for the right to vote, the history of the struggle for democracy in America, and then the part that they can play in it by registering people to vote, by canvassing, by doing digital organizing. We've got to um, engage this new generation. And by the way, that connects to mental health because we don't want these young people sitting at home feeling despondent and alone and demoralized by events. We want them engaged and understand they are part of an historic struggle that their grandparents and great-grandparents were involved in, too. Yeah, I think that that's right. What I love about your book is it gives a kind of cultural healing also, or an idea because your family is um, has this fairly deep love of, say, Shakespeare and also chess. And those kind of practices that slow the mind down, that give sweet, bring sweetness and light to existence is something I also think you suggest in the book and your son, also a poet, might begin to see us through. Yeah, I mean, organized politics is not the be-all and the end-all of existence. Um, it's kind of the price that we all have to pay to live in a democratic society of freedom. Yeah. Because otherwise we're going to get taken over by bullies and kleptocrats and tyrants and despots like Donald Trump. And so we want government to be an instrument of the common good. And then we want a happy common life based on pluralism and engagement with people. And, you know, one of the things I say to the young people on our side is we need people to go out and make common cause and connections with people around the country who you would never speak to before. Mm -hmm. Because one thing that Americans don't love is Puritans who lecture to them. And that's the one thing we've got to get over on our side. Let's recover the American populist and progressive tradition, the New Deal, where we were very clear that we were on the side of the common good, the common man, the common woman. After the break, where does January 6th land among other significant dates in American history like 9-11 and the 4th of July? Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome back to This is Critical. 
This week, we're doing a mini oral history of January 6th, 2021, and I wanted to bring in Jamel Bowie, my former Trumpcast co-host. Jamel is a New York Times columnist and has a new podcast called Unclear and Present Danger, which analyzes the political thrillers of the late 80s and early 90s, movies like The Hunt for Red October and Clear and Present Danger. We'll get to that, but first, one of the things I most admire about Jamel is that he commands such a vast knowledge of American history, and it's that against which the events of January 6th can be best understood. I just can't believe we're coming up on a year since January 6th. How is it starting to settle in memory? (laughs) Maybe how can we keep it unsettled in memory so it doesn't just get fixed as an event that we can control when it was such an anarchic moment? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I'm not sure that it has settled or are fixed yet. I mean, it has for a certain segment of the population, right? Sort of Trump supporters see it as this much more glorious moment. But for the general public, I'm not sure there's been any meaning attached to it yet. And I wonder if you know whether there is any meaning attached to it has to await future events, right? So if Trump runs for president again and then wins, right? Or <laughs> if he runs for president again, looks like he's going to lose and the Republican states start like pulling shenanigans to, kind of, to put him over the edge. Yeah. Then we'll look back at January 6th and see something, see meaning in it that may have not been apparent then, but is now in light of new events. And then the public might be able to see that as well. I mean, this is why I, I think it is important for... Democrats to make January 6th at least a, a regular part of their political rhetoric. It doesn't have to be the all-encompassing thing they talk about, but sort of like every mention, every time you're on TV, you mention it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Because that will help shape the meaning of it for the public. Yeah. If, if Trump is one voice, there needs to be a countervailing voice making the opposite argument consistently and not simply taking for granted that people will see this as some terrible transgressive thing. Because most people don't pay much attention to politics. Most people are worried about other things mm-hmm. other than politics. Most people don't think about events like this in these terms. And so you kind of have to craft the narrative. You have to make people think things in, in these terms. Yeah. But for now, I would say that the memory of January 6th is indeterminate. Not like hmm. this is not settled, not unsettled. It kind of awaits it awaits future events, future actions for it to begin to to settle into something. So I'm curious what moments from history echo the loudest when you think of January 6th. The analogy I made was to the many such instances that happened in the 1870s during Reconstruction. And obviously, I talk about Reconstruction all the time. um, And I try not to do the thing where you're making like a one-to-one comparison between past and present because that's generally not ever the case. Uh, But here... In this particular instance, you know, one one thing that happened with a number of Reconstruction governments is that they were basically stormed by white vigilantes. You know, uh, armed white vigilantes would gather in the streets. This happened in New Orleans in 1874 and attempt to storm state capitals, you know, municipal buildings, like seize them from um, usually black office holders or white office holders who had black support. And so th- there is this, I think, not little known, but less known um, tradi- tradition of like reactionary insurrection, insurrections activity. Mm-hmm. 
that the the specific context for it was kind of a revolt on behalf of a you know hierarchical you know, white dominated socio political order, and it's hard to look at January sixth and not see basically as a a, a scaled up version of exactly that. Mm. You have this excellent new podcast called Unclear in Present Danger about thrillers of the of the 90s, mostly Cold War thrillers, but some of them have the IRA and other terrorists in them. And one of the things you do is retrieve, and I love this, you, you get the front page of the New York Times from the day the movie dropped and then kind of compare the news, whether it was about Iran-Contra, I think, in, the, in, in, the, in the, one of the 1987 movies you talked about. Um, what was that? Uh, no way out. Uh, there was no way. No out. way yeah, out. Kevin Costner. Yeah, and then see how that informed or was part of the context of how the movie was received. I thought you and I could look at the front page of the New York Times on January sixth, twenty twenty one. The thing that stands out is this kind of very mild um, headline: Pence said to tell Trump that votes can't be blocked. So that's it. that's we're anticipating a very gentlemanly conversation. Right. I mean, that's it was clear, I think, in the days leading up to all of this, that something was afoot. Right. You had um, a number of Republican lawmakers in Congress sort of refusing to say whether or not they would certify the election. You know, the, the other headline I'd like to you know just note along these lines is um, uh, Georgians vote charting course of the Senate, which was about the Georgia runoff elections. Yeah. Which do end up being, you know, very consequential for the the year. They deliver um, a Senate majority to the Democrats, and I think that shapes how Congress moves on, responds, responds to all of this. One thing that still astounds me about the impeachment was that the people kind of trying the case against Donald Trump were the victims of the crime, and it was a crime we all saw. The cameras were there. There were broken windows and dead bodies. And yet we've seen a year of it being kind of written over with the intruders being called tourists or peaceful protesters. Has that been surprising to you? I, mean, I guess it's been unnerving to me insofar that one thing that I think is the case about modern American politics and the American political media environment is that things only really become stories if one side makes them a story. And so in, in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, you could count on sort of media coverage to kind of like galvanize people or whatnot. But once you get into into the year, as things continue going on, unless the Democratic Party makes a huge stink about this, unless the Democratic Party makes it kind of a centerpiece of their political rhetoric, mm-hmm. then the media is not really going to pay that much attention to it. You can't really count on the political media to do that kind of work for you, for better or for worse. It's just that's just the way things are. Yeah. Um, and so when you have a the dem- Democratic leadership essentially saying, you know, we're going to do this investigation, we're going to do this, um, you know, we're going to try to get to the bottom of this in Congress, but, you know, Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, kind of the headline leaders, are making their domestic agenda kind of the centerpiece of their messaging. And then you have on the other end the Republican Party and Fox News and conservative media kind of and Trump himself kind of insisting that this was no big deal or that these people are patriots or whatever and loudly doing it. I think I don't think it's a surprise that you have the shape of public opinion that you do at this point, which is that Republicans, Republican voters, self-identified, 
are very positive about January 6th, mm-hmm. believe that Trump uh, had the election stole from him, or at least they say they believe that. Mm-hmm. And Democratic voters and the general public are kind of like, yeah, whatever. You're right that I, I started to say that Republicans or that somehow history has begun to wave away January 6th. But but you're right that that's not true, that right-wing media has decided to turn the, the insurrectionists into heroes and not not deny that it happened. You know, I think it, Trump's effort to sort of reframe November 3rd was the insurrection and January 6th was the protest. Maybe Democrats are in their in their sort of methodical way going to be able to expose what all happened that day and who's responsible. What what do you think? Am I being too optimistic? I mean, I think I think the the January 6th committee in the House is doing a very good job of uncovering and revealing details. Um, I think that's a separate task from making those details politically salient. I think that hmm. requires hmm. kind of a unified message on part of the Democratic Party to really remind the public that not only did this thing happen, not only did people die um, as a result of it, people were killed, but the former president of the United States and many of his supporters think that all of this was a good thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that merely revealing the information creates that impression, that conclusion. Do you see signs that January 6th might have marked a moment where something new could be born in America? You know, introduced more possibilities for the nation's future that we wouldn't have been aware of had things not broken down the way they did. My hope is that the shock of January 6th really pushes people to understand two things. One, that, and they're two related things. The first is that there's nothing guaranteed about our current social and political arrangements that, you know, the uh, political freedom we take for granted could go away. There's no, there's no, there's nothing, but there's nothing that's been ordained by God to say that the United States will always remain an electoral democracy. The second thing, the other side of that is that if things can go in a bad direction, then they can also go in a better direction, right? <laughs> that we have the power and capacity to make this a more um, equal and egalitarian democracy. And that at the very least, the people who want this to be the reverse, that want this place to be more hierarchical um, and less democratic, well, they are taking action as we can see. So it's up to us, it's up to those of us who want the more egalitarian society to also take action for our vision of the good. That's it for this week's show. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please do take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts. It helps other people learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter at page 88 and at this critical pod. If you have a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Harry Huggins is the producer. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical.
Ditcher. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.